Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. As this is the first day and the first Sunday, the first Lord's Day of this year, we are giving our first fruits to the Lord by being here together as a spiritual family to worship our Lord, to praise Him, and now through the exposition of the book of Romans. We are in Romans chapter 9. And we're going to be reading verses 18 through 23. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. And we will also have it on the screen. So that's, again, Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Praise be to the word of the Lord. Let's pray to him now. Dear Lord, as we come before you this Lord's day, this day that you have set apart for you to worship you, to rest from our work, to come together as a family and express our love to you. May you continue to show us your mercy and love that we do not deserve. May you continue to work in our hearts and in our minds as we read your scriptures, as we delve into what this means. For it is all for your glory and for your honor. For these things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have hit a part of Romans that is very tough to get through. <clears throat> it is very controversial. Aside already that chapter 9 itself is a chapter that there is so much back and forth, so much debate. As our, as our pastor says, we're going to settle the issue today. <laughs> but all joking aside, we got to look at these scriptures and we got to read them. We have to understand them. And to the best of our ability, we have to know the mind of God, which he has revealed to us. Not fully, because if we were to know the mind of God, then we ourselves would be God. So that teaches you the attribute of God's incomprehensibility. We cannot know everything that God knows, for then we would be like him in, in that way. No, his mind... His omniscience is beyond even our understanding. But his scriptures 
have revealed to us what he wanted to reveal to us, what he wants us to know about him. So, I have titled this sermon, Why Does God Still Find Fault? So if you're aware of some of the debates that have gone on with these, well, this chapter and these themes, it's the idea and the theory, right, that is posed that God would never find fault in people because he has decreed and ordained everything from the beginning of the world and so forth till, till the end of time and past that. If I were to position things in a certain way and then I would say that position right there, that, that, that thing that I put in that position, I'm going to punish it for being in that position when I put it there. That is how it's posed. It's posed, God put you there and put these situations together. Why would he punish you for your sin, for what you did, when that's the position that you're in? That's where, you're, that's where he put you. Those are tough themes and things to, to look through. But if you read, let's read verse 18 and 19. It states, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, we got to remember something. When we speak about these things, that is one of the common objections. Well, why, does, why would God fault me in this? If, this, if he wills that I um, be hardened. This is a common objection. This is the objection that continually comes up. Well, what you're saying is then that when we're, when we're speaking to them, we're not even reading the scriptures. When we're speaking to them about this, they will say, well, then why would God fault us? Why would God even hold us accountable? That's the common objection. And Paul knows that this is the common objection because he states it himself. So we have to remember that. That objection that comes up when you read previous to verse 18 of chapter 9 is the same objection that Paul is now going to address. So what does that tell us? We are understanding what Paul is saying because it's the same objection. When you have that objection, you're thinking in the same line like, yeah, why, why would he find fault? Paul's going to tell you, yeah, that is the objection. You're going to say to me, why does he still find fault? But what Paul is showing here, and what he showed previously to this, when he's spoken about Pharaoh hardening his heart, is what he's showing evidence of his mercy and hardening in the ultimate sense. Right? So Paul is saying, in the ultimate sense, we're speaking about your salvation, your election. What he's saying is, God hardens and shows mercy on whomever he wills in the ultimate sense in salvation. And to show you evidence of this, let me go to Pharaoh and Pharaoh's hardening. So that was in the previous uh, sermon. And it's just a very touch, just to touch really quick on it, as most of you know, Pharaoh did not want to let his people go. He did not want to let Israel go, God's people go from Egypt. 
he continually hardened his heart. And then the scripture says that God hardened his heart. So we have two citations of Pharaoh hardening his heart or God hardening his heart. And Paul is using those specific events to show the ultimate sense of our salvation. We need to remember that as we go forth because these are tough subjects. So, again, why does God still find fault? We and those people in, in, the, in the Church of Rome know God's secret will that Abraham, okay, Father Abraham as some call it, that he would not actually sacrifice his son even though God told him to sacrifice him. So they know, we know from the scriptures that even though God told him to sacrifice sacrifice his son Isaac, his firstborn, God knew that he wasn't going to do it. Why? Because God was going to stop him. Now let's read Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 2. It states, Now it happened after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Take now your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So here we see the scriptures that God tells Abraham, you're going to go sacrifice your son. And because redemptive history, and we have the full scriptures, we know what happened, he did not sacrifice his son. Which, again, was a foreshadowing, a, a type of God sacrificing his son, which we've spoken about before. God sacrificed his only begotten son for our sins. What else do we know? We know for certain that God willed that Pharaoh's heart should be hardened, and yet the hardness of Pharaoh's heart was sinful. Let's go to Exodus 4, verse 21. And Yahweh said to Moses, When you go to return to Egypt, see to it that all the miraculous wonders which I have put in your hand that you do them before Pharaoh. But as for me, I will harden his heart with strength so that he will not let the people go. So on the surface level, you read this and you go, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why, why is Pharaoh even punished for this? Why is then the last plague of the firstborn children being killed? Again, a foreshadowing of what was to happen. Why would God do this? It's a tough, tough question. We're going to give two more citations. We know that God willed that the Egyptians should hate God's people. So that even the people of Egypt, not just Pharaoh, the people of Egypt would hate the people of Israel. Psalm 105, verse 25. He, that's God, turned their heart, that's the Egyptians, to hate his people, to deal craftily with his slaves. You read that and you think to yourself, God made these people hate 
His people, God's people. Man, what, what is going on here? I know that when I've read these scriptures, especially years ago, I was impacted by this sovereignty of God that I did not understand. I didn't, I'm not saying that I didn't accept it, but I didn't understand it. I was like, I don't get this. What, what is going on here? God is loving. God is merciful. God is st his steadfast love. The Psalms is so much about God's love. And then the last citation I'm going to give. This is the worst crime, the worst sin ever in mankind's history. There is nothing worse than this. And I know that in our heads we can come up with certain scenarios that would seem worse. But this is the only time that a perfect, sinless person, we all have sinned. We all have failed at least even one time. I know it's more, but let's just put it in that. At least one time. Jesus Christ was sinless, is sinless. He was perfect. And he was executed for crimes of saying that he is God and so forth. But let's read what Peter says in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. This was the plan of God all along, to put his son on the cross to die. And if we were there in person, we would have no idea what was really going on we would just see a man being crucified and whether we believe that he's being executed justly or not, we, were, we would just be there. And then the scriptures tell us why this happened. There needed to be a perfect sacrifice, an atonement for the sins of his people, of the elect. So this was planned. As we see with Abraham, the foreshadowing, the type that he the father would sacrifice his only son. We're seeing it there. This is foreshadowed and it's shown and then it happens in history. So why does God still find fault in these people? But if you notice in, in the book of Acts, it says, you nailed to a cross by the hands of lawless men. So Peter is still stating that these men are lawless. They are wicked. So again, how, how could that be? Because this was determined a predetermined plan of God. But Paul, when he talks about this objection, what does he actually say? 
But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Let me post to you, uh, actually it happens all the time <laughs> with my kids. You tell them to do something or not to do something, and they say, but why, or that's not fair, or whatever their objection is. And you say, because I said so. Because I'm the authority here. But why, why? I'm the authority here. Who are you to answer back to me? This is the same thing. Who are we to answer back to God? Why do you still find fault? Who can resist you? Now, in, in the sense of us as mankind answering back to God, do we have any justification to answer back to God or to pose something to the Lord? Even sometimes, if we really think about it, to suggest something to God, oh, it would be really nice, Lord, if you did things this way instead of that way. Who are we to answer back to God? Let me read to you from Romans chapter 3. Verses 9 through 18. And you tell me if we can answer back to God. This is Paul again. Same book. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, and in some other translations it says Gentiles. So this is the whole world. Are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. Man, that means that what we utter actually ensnares us into death. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Now what we say is, is, is death to other people. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Are we to answer back to God when this is us? Because I can tell you, maybe not now, but at some point in my life and for a long time, I had no fear of God. I did whatever I wanted to do instead of what God told me to do. This is the doctrine of total depravity. We are not righteous. We are not sinless. We mess up. We have original sin. We have been tainted in every facet of our lives, our minds, our hearts, our actions, our soul, our will, everything. We need a Savior. And let's be honest. In and of ourselves, we know that we like our sin. Maybe not every sin, but many of our sins. And if we had no consequences, we would continue in them. Plain and simple. Pick the sin that you love the most, that you struggle with the most. If, some, if you read in the scriptures 
or somewhere that said, don't worry about it. No, nothing's going to happen to you. You would continue to do it, right? I mean, that's just obvious. So if there were no consequences, if nobody were to tell you, no, you, what you're doing is not, it's not wrong. It's okay. You would continue to do it. All of us. All of us. So, the potter's right over the clay. Let's get to this now. We have heard that we should not answer back to God by saying that and asking, why does God even find fault? Paul says here, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? That's a tough statement. The potter has a right, as again, who are we to answer back to God? The potter has the right, if you put yourself as a potter, as a creator of whatever, and you decide, I'm going to make this stuff. I'm going to make this stuff. I'm going to use this, and this I'm not going to use. I'm going to discard. You have every right to do that when you are creating something, when you are the potter. God is the same. But this language is actually used before. This is somewhat of a citation and an allusion. Let's go to Isaiah 45, 9 through 10. Woe to the one who contends with his maker, an earthenware vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, what are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, he has no hands? Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor pains? Can you imagine telling your parents, why are you having me? Like if I had a decision in that? You don't say that to your parents, right? Because your parents make that decision. The makers make that decision when it comes to things that they create. God makes that decision. Now, I want to read from our confession of faith here at Acts Reformed Church, the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 3, verse 1. Verse, I mean, paragraph 1. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will. Quick note, it says holy counsel, S-E-L. In other words, he's counseling himself, not that he has a counsel that he's meeting together with. Because there's some people that will bring that up. Freely and unchangeably. This is the key right here. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. 
So our confession is stating that although God has decreed and ordained everything to come to pass, that means the good and the bad, he is not the author of sin. He does not sin. Nor does he have fellowship. He's not friends with sin. Like, oh, sin, you're my buddy. Yet this decree does not violate our wills, what we do, what we want to do, what we feel, what we think, how we act. And that is a very important part as we, as we continue on. Because, again, as I said earlier, when you look within yourselves, there, is, there might be some, but there's a lot of our sins that we do that we want to do them. We, we want to. We might stop ourselves or somebody stops us. Second causes is somebody, some, something outside of us could, could, could stop us, right? Like the law, the, the police, the government, and so forth. But we want to do them. But God does not sin, and he does not make anybody sin. Further than that, he doesn't even tempt you to sin. Let's read James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. If he does not tempt you, then by logical deduction, he does not make you sin. Think about that. Tempting you is to get you to do something out of your own will. So if he doesn't even do that, he would not put sin in you, make you sin. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully matured, it brings forth death. God does not tempt us. But, but, God may lead you into temptation. There is a difference. Let's go to 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verses thir verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you by such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. So what do we see two things here? God will never lead you into temptation where there is no way for you to say, no, I'm not going to do that. So you can't say, there was only one option. There was only one option. There wasn't anything else. I had to sin. So some people will pose this. Somebody has a gun to your head and says, you either sin or you, or this person dies. Well, they have the gun to your head. 
There's actually three choices. You either sin, that person dies, or you die. There's always a way out. Why? Because we don't have to actually sin. We can instead suffer the righteous consequence of not sinning. Because sometimes we have to suffer and we have to go through afflictions. Not because of what we did. Sometimes. A lot of times it's from what we did. But we don't always have to. Let's go to Matthew 4, verse 1. Listen to this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Holy Spirit led Jesus Christ to be tempted. So can we be led to be tempted? Yes. But did it say the Holy Spirit tempted Jesus? No. Because God can't tempt you to sin. There's no sin in him. Last but not least, Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember all the way which Yahweh your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Being led into temptation is a testing. God tested Jesus because he had to pass the test, which we know he was going to pass because he's sinless and he's perfect and he's God-man. He had to pass the test that the Israelites, as is shown in Deuteronomy, as Israel did not pass. He also had to pass the test that Adam did not pass. When you are led into temptation, it is a testing to what? whether you would keep God's commandments or not. So, what does this show us? Being tested is a mercy of God. For God could just punish you by death for your transgressions. God could say, leads you into a temptation, um, no, you know what? I'm not even going to lead you into temptation to test you. I'm just going to punish you for your sins. That's it. Even being led into temptation or being tested is a mercy of God because he's showing you, right, as it says again in Deuteronomy, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. They needed to know in their hearts if they were to pass the test or not. Most did not pass. Most. Even a full generation died in the wilderness. They would not be able to see the promised land. So, God makes some for dishonorable use, right? The, the dishonorable use, there's a, the, the good and the bad, right? by not showing mercy to them and instead giving them justice, which is well-deserved justice. We deserve justice. And what do we get? Mercy, love. Every time we sin, what do we deserve? Sin brings forth death. 
And what do we actually get? Even, even unbelievers, they get mercy still to even not be punished right away. They still have a chance to what? Repent. Turn away. So this brings us to verses 22 and 23. There's this concept called double predestination that we're going to get into really quick. I'm not going to delve too, too long into it. But let's read verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? What are we seeing here? There's vessels of wrath that have been prepared for destruction. There's vessels of mercy that have been prepared for glory. And as it says, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power. There is a group that we call them hyper-Calvinists. We here are Calvinists, but there's something called hyper-Calvinists. In other words, they go even further and to the point where we completely disagree with them. Well, hyper-Calvinists insist that God works sin in humans by making them vessels of wrath. We disagree with this. Because what they're showing is this thing called positive, positive view of predestination. I'm going to have R.C. Sproul, who so eloquently makes things simple for us to understand. He states, the distortion of double predestination looks like this. There is a symmetry that exists between election and reprobation. In other words, there's, it's equal, the same on one side as the other. God works in the same way and same manner with respect to the elect and to the reprobate. That is to say, from all eternity, God decreed some to election and by divine initiative, works faith in their hearts, and brings them actively to salvation. So far, so good. By the same token, from all eternity, God decrees some to sin and damnation and actively intervenes to work sin in their lives, bringing them to damnation by divine initiative. In the case of the elect, regeneration is the monergistic work of God, in the case of the reprobate, sin and degeneration are the monergistic work of God. So that is the distortion of double predestination. It's not saying that pre double predestination is wrong. What it's saying is they are distorting what true double predestination is. Because they want to say that God, the same way he works with believers, with the elect, where he shows them grace and favor, undeserving favor, regenerates them, brings them from spiritual death to life, gives them the faith of Abraham, a faith that works. God does all that. So, oh, then God does the same for the unbeliever. He kill, he, he, they're spiritually dead because of God. So then he puts sin in their heart to continually do these things because they're vessels of wrath. 
That is unbiblical, as we saw again that in, in the book of James. God doesn't even tempt you. Leading you into temptation is different than tempting you. Testing you is different than having you do it. So again, I will reach back to our confession. Chapter 3, paragraph 3. By God's decree and for the demonstration of his glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Wow, that's beautiful. Others are left, notice that, are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. God does not need to put sin in us. We naturally sin. Why? Because for most of our sins, we love them. We want to continue in them. Our minds are separate from God. Wants nothing to do with God. Is enemy of God. So what does God do when he saves you? He takes your will, your heart, and your mind and regenerates it. Brings it to life from being spiritually dead. Or as in Ezekiel, gives you a heart of... Uh, actually, maybe in Jeremiah. Gives you a heart of flesh and brings you to him. Not kicking and screaming. He brings you to him because he changes who you are. He transforms you and makes you a new creation. You are born a vessel of wrath because you have original sin, total depravity. No one is good, not even one. And God turns you into a vessel of grace, of what is it again? Of mercy. Vessel of mercy. Honorable use. So I hope we cleared that up. But that's, it's a tough subject. It's tough themes. And we have to look at those scriptures and not look at them with one eye here and that's it. We look at all of scripture. What does scripture say? Scripture says God does not sin. God does not tempt you to sin. But he does test you. Don't confuse the two. So what is our application for daily practice? Number one, God's sovereignty is truly sovereign. That kind of almost doesn't make sense, right? God's sovereignty, right? He is, this is his kingdom. This is his world. He created this. He is ruler. And by truly sovereign, he's in control of everything. What we do or what we don't do, okay, has been decreed by God. Why? As he said, in, even in the worst crime, this was a predetermined plan of God for these lawless men who want to do this. He allowed them to do this because what did it bring about? The salvation of his people. That's why he's truly sovereign. 
without his permission, nothing will happen. Again, the verses that we read, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power? Paul is giving us a little glimpse of why God works this way. This is the scriptures. This is our God. To make known his power. To show his wrath. And by extension, his justice. This is to show us vessels of mercy by making known his attributes of wrath and justice. This is for us to know who our God is, is an attribute or attributes. What, why? Why do we need to know this? Because a God that doesn't show wrath is not the God of the Bible. He is an idol that we make in our hearts or in our minds. The God of the Bible punishes sin, whether now or whether at the end of time. We must not forget that, especially when we preach the gospel. God, his son, is coming to judge the wicked and to judge the, his elect too, but his elect have the righteousness of Christ. Again, does not come from us. It is from Christ. That's mercy. But to the wicked, they are held accountable for their sins. That's point number two. You and I and all of us are still accountable for our sins. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We're accountable for our sins because we by nature are children, almost in fact vessels of wrath, if it's not for what God does with us. We must not forget, why does God still find fault? Because we're accountable for our sins. Something that we want to do that comes out of our hearts. And those sins will be judged. Unless you have the righteousness, the white garments as is in Revelation of Christ. His perfection that only we can attain by the mercy of God. That leads to my third and final point. Only the mercy... And love of God can save us. There's nothing else. You can't do it yourself. You can't work it. 
It's impossible. Again, I've said, we are saved by grace through faith. If faith is the instrument, it cannot come from us because our faith would die. We would fail. This must be a faith that is given by God, that works, that loves God, that obeys Him. So let's finish off Ephesians 2, up to verse 7, 4 to 7. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Can you imagine that we're on the road to destruction, to damnation, and we want to be there? We want nothing to do with that other road over there. And God changes us and teaches us, you're going into damnation. Come here with me and shows us mercy and love that we do not deserve. That is the gospel. That is the good news. Praise be to our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Dear precious, merciful, and loving God, there is no other like you. For we deserve your wrath, your judgment, your chastisement, and instead you come to us tenderly, graciously, and lovingly, and transform us into a new creation to love you, to worship you. We could never repay you, Lord. It is a debt that even as the, our other debt has been paid, now we incur a debt that we could still never pay of how gracious and merciful you've been with us. May everyone here and in the world know who you truly are. You are a God that has and shows wrath, a God that will give justice and well-deserved justice. But you're also a God that is merciful and loving. And as you wipe away our tears and hold us under your wing, we will forever say to you, Lord, gracious are you, O Lord. Great are you, our Lord. Blessed be our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. For these things we pray in your precious name. Amen.